What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. My name is Jared, and we've got a very special episode today. Today, we've got a double collab. In studio with me today is Michael from Lessons from the Screenplay. Good to have you again, Michael. Yeah, excited to be here. And we have Sage from Just Right again. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, great to have both of you here. We did seven with Michael, and then over a year ago, we did Network with Sage, which Ooh. is still one of the best movies ever. Right, so, right, right. I thought was... you meant seven podcasts with Michael. Oh, no, no, no. We did we did the Fincher movie seven. Um, so today we're talking about Blade Runner. Oh, by the way, before we do that, um, I did tell everybody that we were doing Midsummer this week, but uh, because it's VidCon and Sage was in town, we decided to push that back a week so we could take advantage of having him here in the studio. But we will be doing Midsummer next week. But today, we're doing Blade Runner, the 1982 film directed by Ridley Scott, starring Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, and Sean Young. As always, we're going to go around and see what people think of this movie, what was it like the first time they watched it, what was it like watching it for this podcast or if you didn't rewatch it what was like the last time you've seen it because i'm sure many of us have seen it many times because we've all made videos about this movie so let's start with the guy from out of town let's start with sage sage what's how is blade runner rank in your life man just hearing you say who this movie is starring just Mm kind of like gave me chills because these actors are so incredible rucker hauer in this movie is incredible sean young is immaculate in this film um i don't have too long of a history with blade runner uh i think the first time i saw it was like maybe five years ago Mm. um and it took me a while to like get on its groove but man watching this movie it just puts you in a mindscape that like no other movie gets you in totally yeah also have you any of you guys what cuts of this movie have you guys seen well, first, let's see what Michael has to say. Sure. Uh, yeah, I saw Blade Runner, I think, back in college. So 10, 11 years ago, something. Math. Um, and I, I did not like it the first time because it was slow and boring. And I was like, I don't get it. And then I saw it again later. And I was like, this is genius. This is amazing. And I feel like that's a trend that I've seen a lot of people have with Blade Runner is the first time it's kind of hard to get into it. And then the second time, I think I knew more of the context. And I just kind of like fell in love with it. Um, and I think part of that was also, I think the first cut that I watched was the theatrical cut. Oh, wow. Like, I think it had the voiceover okay. and like all that stuff. And then the second time was the final cut, which I is my personal favorite. So I, I've, I've only ever seen the director's cut and the final cut. So how bad is the theatrical cut? <laughs> it's, I mean, different people have their preferences. In my opinion, it's pretty bad. Like the voiceover narration just doesn't like it, it feels kind of like it should work because it's in that noir detective you know history but you know even when i was doing research for my video harrison ford did not like the voiceover like there's footage of him doing it and he's just kind of half-heartedly saying it because he didn't believe that it was going to be in the movie he thought there's no way they're going to use this so he like wasn't even trying mm-hmm. and then that's what they used so i feel like it's <laughs> it's pretty bad in my opinion okay and then have you seen only the final cut sage yeah it's just been just been the final cut yeah i don't really remember the difference between the director's cut and the final cut i think that the unicorn thing is added into uh, the final cut. i actually looked this up today okay um so they expanded the unit the unicorn dream sequence in the final cut but it was initially put into the director's cut and how familiar are you guys with Blade Runner 2049? Because I've only seen it once. I need to see it again. But there are certain things I found myself asking, like, okay, at this movie, some, you know, people ask, is Deckard a replicant? And then I say, wait, was that answered in 2049 or not? 
Yeah. Um I've seen I've seen 2049 twice. Okay. Um I don't feel like I've analyzed it yet. Yeah. That, um that's like I haven't they're... unpacked it, you know. <laughs> so you guys to give you guys some background uh yeah. Michael and Sage, I was like, what what movie do you guys want to cover? And they said, what about one of the Blade Runners? And I said, all right, I feel much more equipped to do the first one because the second one I've only seen once. And I've seen this movie like four or five times. And yeah, the second one, I'm just like, all right, I need to put some time aside to analyze that one. Yeah. Yeah. And on the question of uh, Deckard being a human... Um, or a replicant. I think Ridley Scott is the only one who thinks he's a replicant. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Like, yeah, like everyone else involved in the production is like, he's human. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, like, it's not even so interesting answering the question. It's more, for, for me, like the interesting part about it is that you're even asking the question. Yeah. Um, and the fact that there's so few differences between the humans and the replicants yeah. that y- you never know, maybe you could be one, yeah. right? So I, th- I think in 2049 they go off the the assumption that he's a human. Okay. Um, especially, like, I don't know can like if replicants can have children. I, like, that's a... Right. Well, I feel, I feel like sure that's, that's the thing point. of 2049. That, that's yeah. the special thing that happened for the first time. But that was actually one of my problems with 2049 is that it, I feel like it does kind of answer that concretely, that yeah. Deckard is a human because he gets old and he dies and all that stuff. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, that was kind of an anti-spoiler alert because he doesn't die. Oh, that's right. He doesn't die. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Well, I'm going to stop. Other people. About none dies. of us know 2049 very well. Like <laughs> Other this. people die. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen it, but that was one of the things I didn't like about it is that it did kind of kind of have to answer that for sure, whether or not he was human. And I do like that it's open-ended in the final cut of Blade Runner. And sort of like you said, Sage, it's asking the question and lets you kind of think about what that means. Okay. Now, what year does the original Blade Runner take place? Um, actually, it's the perfect year to be recording this because it's 2019. Oh, okay. Uh, in November, so we're four months early. Okay. Yeah. So 2049, he's 30 years older. Because I was wondering if maybe Harrison Ford, if they don't address it in 2049, maybe it could just be that he ages quickly, like Rutger Hauer's or like uh, I guess Rutger Hauer's character doesn't age quickly; he just expires quickly. Never mind. Going down a tangent. <laughs> we're, today a... we're talking about Blade Runner, not Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this movie, I've seen it probably four or five times, as I said. The first time I saw it was also in college. I saw the final cut, and I was just in the right mood. It's a very sleepy movie, and I think <laughs> and I think I really just was in this stage where I had just seen Risky Business for the first time, and I really liked the kind of 80s trance music. I mean, that one's Tangerine Dream. It's not in this one, but I really, really connected with it, and it really just put me in this state to really captured this tone that I thought was really, really unique. And even in the final cut, it still does that. This movie visually seems like an impossible achievement to me. When I watch this movie, it's so beautiful, I can't even believe that it happened. That it's... Yeah. I mean, every (laughs) shot looks like it took two days to light. Right. Yeah. For sure. And it kind of sounds like that is what happened. Like, that's (laughs) one of my favorite parts about the... Blu-rays that they release is they have these like really long documentaries about the making of Blade Runner and it was such a difficult process uh, to make because of you know Ridley's vision and all the things required to light it and to have these big like street scenes and it's in the rain and there's all these like cars that have to move and all the timing of things and it was going way over budget and all the stuff uh, and so it, I think it kind of is an impossible movie because 
almost didn't happen and probably shouldn't have happened. Like if the people financing it knew what it was going to be, they would never have said yes. But it just kind of kept just barely being enough to like make it happen and and all that stuff. So it is beautiful. And they had to cut it five times before it actually did happen. Right. Right. Do you guys think directors can get away with that kind of perfectionism these days? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, like, not in certain areas of of the movie industry. Like, not not with a Marvel movie. Yeah. Um, maybe with a with a, with other kinds of movies. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I would say either like in a really low budget setting or on like a streaming service, like a Netflix. Like, I feel like Netflix would let David Fincher do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Basically, so I feel like in those kind of lower stakes quote-unquote uh, arenas there's probably more room for that perfectionism or with like an established director like wes anderson or quentin tarantino who have like very specific right. styles and tones like they can get away with making sure that that is there because it's like yeah. the entire selling point yeah. yeah i also wonder with with cgi if even that kind of creative control just requires less mania on set because so much you can just add in post whereas in blade runner 2049 you literally had to coordinate whatever seven teams one doing the lighting one doing the technological effects and all that stuff going on that seems to so effortlessly work in concert to create this fucking beautiful movie that i can't believe every time <laughs> i see it but anyway let's go into a recap ex-blade runner rick deckard is brought back into the force and tasked with tracking down and exterminating a group of nexus 6 replicants or superpowered androids used as off-world slave labor that are illegal on earth Deckard visits the office of Eldon Tyrell, the tycoon who created the replicants, where he meets his assistant Rachel, who doesn't even know that she is a replicant. Meanwhile, the replicants Roy, Leon, and Pris seek an audience with Tyrell in order to gain a longer life. They are pointed in the direction of engineer J.F. Sebastian, who will lead them to Tyrell. Rachel confronts Deckard about being a replicant, and after retiring another replicant, Deckard is accosted by Leon, who almost kills him, but Rachel saves Deckard in the nick of time by shooting Leon. After Deckard recovers, he and Rachel share an intimate moment. Pris and Roy find J.F. Sebastian and make him lead them to Tyrell. Roy asks Tyrell for a longer life, and when Tyrell declines, Roy kills him. Deckard kills Pris and pursues Roy to a rooftop where Roy monologues about the horrors he's seen as he peacefully expires. Deckard rendezvous with Rachel and right before they're about to flee the city, Deckard finds an origami unicorn. End of movie. All right, so Sage, I think you hit it hit the nail on the head when you said earlier it's like does it even matter if he's a replicant? Which is actually one of the reasons why when 2049 came out, I was a little bit disappointed that Harrison Ford was even in it. Because let's just leave that, you know, all right, enough about 2049. (laughs) Um, But yeah, let's talk about, I think, the big thing about replicants is memories in this movie. So um, Rachel discovers that her memories have been implanted and that none of them actually happened. And at the beginning, Deckard is keen on suggesting that there's a clear distinction between replicant and human. And since Rachel's memories didn't happen to her, that makes her different than him. But at the end, after Deckard's final confrontation with Roy, he realizes that no matter if your memories are created organically or digitally implanted, all of our experiences, no matter how important, personal, profound, will ultimately wash away like tears and rain. Um, and there's that really cool part. And uh, so what, what's the other replicant's name? Um, Leon. He's like, he's preoccupied with his precious photos. And, um, but yeah, let's talk about that last scene. Um, 
when you guys watched that scene for the first time with Roy kind of dying, saying, time to die, I've seen things, what did you guys initially take away from it, and what do you guys take away from it now? Great question. Um, this movie's so incredible that like it makes you feel for the antagonist yeah. as he's dying. Um I don't know if I have a great, great, uh, great answer to your question. I mean, like, you know, tears and rain um, that, you know, memories slip away and they are ultimately meaningless mm-hmm. is kind of what's what's going on unless until like unless you can stay alive. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I always when I watched it this time, I thought maybe that the reason why, even though Decker just killed Pris, the reason why Roy doesn't kill him kill Deckard is because maybe he thinks that only by telling him about the horrors that he saw while he was a slave that that would be the only way that his memories don't go to waste like tears and rain right if the memories live on through Deckard in some way yeah yeah at the end he says quite an experience to live in fear isn't it that's what it is to be a slave yeah and that's the moment that he like uh that uh, uh Roy realizes that Deckard is capable of fear and kind of like recognizes the humanity in Deckard, mm-hmm. which is kind of the opposite of what you think would happen in this movie. Yeah. Like you'd think that it's going to end with Deckard realizing the humanity in the replicants. Right. But yeah, you have that uh, that beautiful scene where Roy Beatty. is <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. yeah. And again, like what you're saying about like just the staging of it too, like how every frame has like, it's just covered in rain and mm-hmm. the lighting of it. It's it's beautiful. I don't know. I'll pass it off to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so just again, remembering the stories from the set, I, I feel like that was like one of the last scenes that they shot because it was basically at the point where the studio was like, we're pulling the plug in two days. Finish your movie by then. And so it was like trying to capture this ending and the sun was coming up and like, you know, a lot of the lines or some of the lines anyway that he says are improvised and he was kind of adding while they were shooting. And so it, I feel like that almost adds to the magic of that ending. It's it just pulling it off was such a crazy thing that it was kind of a miracle that it happened. And I feel like that spirit somehow comes across in those last moments also. But yeah, it, it is such an, uh, it's kind of an interesting point that I hadn't really thought about that you pointed out, Sage, is that it's him realizing the humanity in Deckard. And that's such a beautiful kind of irony and I think a really nice uh, end piece to you know this film that's exploring what does it mean to be alive. And we have these kind of things that we used to tell ourselves, well, we're humans and we're alive because we have memories and we have souls and all these things. And it's kind of poking holes and all of that. Yeah. And like the, the test that they do at the beginning, like the, um, which I'm going to forget the name of. Avoid comp. Avoid comp. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it like, it's designed to provoke emotion, which like suggests that like the people who designed that test believe that you have to show emotion in order to be human. Mm-hmm. But when you're watching the movie, the only people who are really showing emotion are the replicants. Right. Like everyone, every actual human is like really cold and distant and so is the environment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's some interesting things with Roy, especially Roy seems to be the smartest and most cultured character in the movie. So he, when they meet the guy who created their eyes, Roy quotes a modified excerpt from William Blake's America a Prophecy. He says, Fiery the angels fell, deep thunder rolled about their shores, burning with the fires of Orc. I just, it's got, he, Rutger Hauer's just so good. I can only <laughs> he, like, uh, attempt he seemed, to emulate, yeah. He, actually, the act, like, Rutger 
suggested putting that line. In I also heard he suggested the Tears and Rain line. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Why isn't he a writer? Like, I, I think I saw that same documentary that you were talking what's about. What's he doing and do it like voicing Kingdom Hearts movies? <laughs> Is that or, what he's doing? Or uh, Kingdom Hearts video games. Yeah, he's the bad huh. guy in Kingdom Hearts. No way. Oh, wow. yeah. Him and Haley Joel Osment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um so there's also a line that speaks to what you guys are saying that is repeated twice at the end when Edward James almost this character who I don't actually know the character's name he says it's too bad she won't live but then again who does yeah. so what's gaff oh that's right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so whether it's f- they live four years or 400 years eventually we all die and I think that when when Deckard and Rachel leave it's kind of like one must live in the now no matter whether she's a replicant or not mm-hmm. and we have to savor our memories whether fake or not the fact that we have them is what makes us human or sentient or whatever you want to call it um actually just to do you have uh more on that uh blake quote that no i don't have the i don't have the whole text of the poem here okay because actually i looked uh oh cool go for it about it um because it's from um america a prophecy yeah uh which is a poem by william blake written 1793 so it's like just after Mm -hmm. the american revolution um, and what he's referencing there is that orc um, in that poem is basically a representative of the American Revolution. Mm. Um, you can kind of liken it to, uh, you know, the devil in um, uh, in Paradise Lost, mm. right? So it's like the rebellious devil rebelling against God. Yeah. Um, so that's what he was seeing as what America is doing now. Um, but the way that the lines are changed um in like in blade runner versus the poem so it starts with fiery the angels fell in the movie but the line is actually fire the angels fiery the angels rose um mm. so um there's basically like a reversal of those two I- of the two the two ideas there um so like in the poem the angels are rising with this revolution and now you have Rutger Hauer's character saying that they're dying. So it's kind of mm. like basically saying like America is dying, mm. um, which is like a huge thing in this movie where like one of the first lines you hear is uh, the blimp advertising off-world colonies, right? Mm-hmm. And like the lines in that are, I, I had them. I had them here. <laughs> I, so, I have notes everywhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's basically, basically it's like, you know, the off-world colonies, they're the land of opportunity, right? And you can go and have a life there. It's basically the promise of America, but it's not America anymore. Yeah, and right? so. uh, and of course, the whole set looks like it's kind of I don't know, I don't know if it's necessarily post post-apocalyptic, but the world looks like a shithole. Yeah. There's tons of pollution. I really like how they communicate that with there's just light pollution throughout everything. There's <laughs> no scene that doesn't have some sort of uh egregious beam of light coming through the frame coming off of an atari sign yeah there were a lot of atari signs i noticed yeah but i'm not on the thing about the the angels dying and maybe you already suggested this but it seems like it could also be that uh they are they are the fiery angels that were created by their god and then cast into hell which is the off-world colony where they were doing slave labor and now they're I mean, you could say they were uprising, but I guess they're not really because all they're doing is looking for more life. Right. Or you could, like, Earth could be hell in this scenario mm. and the off-world colonies are, are heaven, right? Yeah. Um, and the line from Paradise Lost is better to rule in hell than, than be a slave the, in heaven. Right. right? So. And they were slaves in heaven. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, you guys, both your channels, which are 
some of my favorite channels, by the way. Really glad to have both of you guys. But you guys focus specifically on writing. And this movie really does seem to so much of it is based on the very slow pacing, the very bassy uh, dialogue. So when you guys engage with this movie, how much of it is do you ascribe its uh, its merit to the directing versus the script as opposed to a traditional movie that you guys would analyze? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think one of the challenges I had when looking at this movie is that I, th- I personally feel so much of it is in the directing and the performances and the music and just the cinematography. I, th- I feel like it's a better film than screenplay. Like, I think if you just looked at the screenplay, you might think that this is a ridiculous movie and, and it doesn't really, the structure is kind of weird. And like you said, there are kind of, it's a very slow pacing and that's why I feel like it's not an example of like a perfect film, but I think it's a good example of how sometimes you can let go of structural perfection and achieve something else. Like if all the ideas in there are powerful and are being explored in all the different ways of filmmaking, you know, top down, um, that there is in kind of letting go of the kind of conventional story structure, um, it creates this room to explore things in a more deep way and you run the risk of people watching it and not getting it and not liking it because there are a lot of people that really don't like watching Blade Runner. Um, but for the people that do, I think it, it taps into something that uh, maybe you can't get if you're just trying to make a normal movie that anyone could sit down and watch and get into. Right, for sure. I, I describe it like both the filmmaking visually and the storytelling as just dense. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's just so much being layered on top of one another. Like even like just the quote we were just talking about with Blake, like that that one quote gives a window to an entirely different interpretation for the film. And that stuff is happening constantly. Um, it's just all the way through. Yeah. yeah. I think more to what Michael was saying, I think if you just look on the page of the scenes between Rachel and Deckard, I think we can imagine a movie where it just doesn't work where it is totally flat. I think if I was probably reading the script having not seen the movie, I would probably not buy the romantic connection between the two. But once again, because it's just shot so methodically and operatically and slowly, it works. really works. Yeah. I feel like it's one of those movies that puts you in a mood and then doesn't ever let you go. And I feel like it, it works because of, like you're saying, it's so dense. There's all these things happening all at once. And I think if you can tap into that, then you're kind of brought in and carried along on this like really wonderful journey. But I think it is not super accessible for people. So I think that's right. why there's this kind of barrier to entry. And I think that's why you know it took me seeing it again to be able to access all of that. And especially for people who saw this in the 80s, like to have a movie that's combining so many genres at once. Yeah. Um, like both of our videos touch on how it's basically film, like it's film noir right. and like the roots of that. Um, but yeah, anytime you're crossing genres and stuff, it's very difficult to get an audience in on it unless they're fans of both genres. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that's why I liked it more the second time, actually, is because I think in that time period, I'd learned to really love film noir. And so I think it, having that kind of knowledge and background does make you appreciate what it's doing and, and kind of adds that extra level of it's it's this new thing, but it's also paying homage to all of these previous films and this previous kind of storytelling. And whereas the old film noirs were sort of, you know, about 
crime versus the law and like what's good and what's bad. It's kind of taking that formula and, you know, where the private detective is kind of caught in between those two things where he's not quite a good person, but he's not like the police officer either. He's not a criminal. He's not police. And Deckard is kind of in that place in this world where he has empathy for uh, the replicants, but is also working for the police and is tasked to shut them down. And so I think having that kind of background helped me appreciate um, all the things that it was doing in, in the storytelling in that way. Yeah, absolutely. When we were talking about Seven uh, last time, Michael, we we were talking about how there's some interesting parallels between Somerset and John Doe. And I think you could draw similar and between the protagonist and the antagonist. I think you can draw a similar thing here between Roy and Deckard because they're both trained killers that are good at their job because they lack emotion. There's a line at the very beginning where Deckard says that his ex-wife used to his, his ex-wife used to call him sushi cold fish because <laughs> he was so emotionless and uh yeah I that's something that I've been looking for more in movies with protagonists and antagonists I really like when there's some sort of level of association between the two of them mm-hmm. it's funny because it's um it touches on the uh idea of Japanese dominance in mm. in this movie um, it was sushi cold fish, right? Yeah, sushi cold. Yeah, <laughs> sushi cold fish. Yeah, cold fish. So, like the idea of of Japan dominant. So yeah, so a big uh, idea in all cyberpunk and especially in Blade Runner is the idea that Japan is going to become the dominant cultural force. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of anxieties about that in um, in cyberpunk. It's what's why cyberpunk looks so Japanese. Um, this movie opens with a giant uh, picture of a geisha on on a billboard. Deckard's first scene is him eating uh, noodles and rice um, from, a, you know, from a Japanese, presumably I'm going to, uh, <laughs> let me cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Japanese food stand. Right. When he's, yeah. So he's eating, uh, he's eating Japanese food, which you know, when we watch it today, that's like that doesn't register as anything to us. But in the '80s, that was kind of an anxiety in the air. Yeah, because their uh, economy was just woo, right, going. straight up. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, so that's funny that that uh, that extended to to that line that's cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's talk about eyes. So like eyes and photographs are a good motif in the movie. So like the second shot of the film is an extreme close up of what I assume is Deckard's eye. Uh, of course, the Void Comp test <laughs> focuses on eyes. Uh, then they go to the guy who said he designed Roy's eyes. Then this also extends into photos. So Rachel shows Deckard a photo of her with her mother to prove that she's real. There's those more photos in Leon's apartment. And then I think it's perhaps deliberate that in Roy's final monologue, he says that I've seen things. And um, yeah, so I think we can all see how this focuses on perception, our inability to perhaps distinguish real and fake, especially when our memories could be false. But like Sage said at the beginning, I think ultimately it doesn't matter as long as those memories are there. Right, right. Yeah, Hold on one second. yeah and then there's that there's that fabulous line when um, uh, Roy seeks out the guy who makes the eyes, mm-hmm. um, and he says to him, uh, Chew, if you could only see what I've seen with mm-hmm. your eyes, mm-hmm. which... Just a fabulous little bit of writing there. Yeah. And it's, you know, ironic that he's uh, saying that to him, but also just like, you know, it's not just having the eyes. It's like the fact that you have to have an experience and use them, right, to, to see something. Right? Yeah. So. It is kind of an interesting idea to think about kind of 
tying it back to memories also that you know we we know that our human memory is so fallible and like we don't really remember things accurately and so we feel like we have these memories but maybe they're not even real so i feel like that's kind of can discredit that as a, a test of what is alive or not and I, I feel like you know as i've been listening to you guys talk about the memories and the perception thing it, it's i feel like what also matters is you know the past helped us get to where we are but it's about what we do now and so like whether our memories are real or not they got us to this place they've informed who we are in this moment and the choices that we're going to make right now and i feel like that doesn't matter whether you're a human or a replicant whether they're real or fake that's the important part absolutely yeah and this movie does that on like a really meta level with the music as well um so one big part of the music is this like uh, the sax, a saxophone, kind of. Well, it sounds like a saxophone because it's done in an electronic way, but it's very much aping the cliche of the film noir movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much aping off of the cliche of saxophone music in film noir. Um, you know, they have the do 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 do. Right? Yeah. Have like you ever seen Thief? I haven't. No. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's egregious, but yeah, the, the saxophone <laughs> in that movie. But right. But the funny thing about the cliche of saxophone in film noir is that it never existed. Um, in actual film noir, like, they didn't. What's that? Like fifties film noir, like forty 50, or thirties, thirties and forties. Yeah, and yeah, in the thirties, thirties and. That's 40s so interesting because yeah. you were yeah, as you were talking about that, I was like, oh right, like they do in the film noir but like i couldn't find an example as i was running through my head right the only the reason it happened this way is because so there's no saxophone really in any film noir until the french start looking at uh, film noir and taking it seriously hence why they named the genre mm-hmm. um, and at the same time they were taking american jazz really seriously so you have french um directors in the french new wave who start putting those two things Hmm. together and then eventually the Americans start copying the French off of that. So they start forming that cliche of there being this, you know, this uh, saxophone music in film noir Hmm. when that's only like a retrospective thing that we've like, we've implanted a memory in ourselves about that as a culture. Mm. Um, And this movie uses that as well. Yeah. So, what do they yeah. call that? What the, the what, what do you call that? The Bernstein Bear thing? What is that called? The, the Mandela the effect. Mandela effect. Uh, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing drives me crazier than the Mandela effect. Like, in, in, in that you actually do remember those things, or no? Just that the people like who are so narcissistic that you know, it's not that they were wrong once. It's that the entire universe shifted when they blinked. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's kind of one of the things about film noir that I find so fascinating, just to kind of quickly touch on that point again, is that like it it was a genre that we didn't know that we had. Like we like the French found it and identified it and named it. And then we started paying attention to them, paying attention to what we had done. And that's kind of how it became Mm, a thing. Right. And it's that's such a cyberpunk idea Hmm. of like these of, you know, things shifting from one culture to another and blending together. Yeah. 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 Another cool visual thing happens in this movie um, when Zora is Zora Zora, the, the snake replicant, snake lady. She dies among a store of mannequins. And I thought that was a pretty deliberate, interesting thing to further ask us to distinguish between a real person and a fake person. Um, one could also say that she's, as she dies, she's breaking through the glass, breaking through barriers, perhaps. 
I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching there. But that's why this movie's so dense is that you can look at any one little motif and extrapolate it out to the entire movie. Like she dies and she gets two bullet holes in her shoulder blades, mm. um, which, you know, going back to the metaphor of uh, these characters being fallen angels, right? Mm, it, the wings. Right. It'd be mm. like if they got oh, their cool. wings clipped, like that's where the wounds would be. Isn't it interesting how certain movies invite the ability to endlessly interpret whereas others don't like there's a certain mystical mystique around Kubrick to where there's really no levels of interpretation that are too deep to where people would say (laughs) that oh you know or, or like The Shining for example which is also in this movie The Shining um, in uh, the in one of the cuts where they have the happy ending, oh yeah, they used aerial shots from the shining oh. right to fill out the. the <laughs> That's cut. where like him, in the in one of the original cuts, it's him and Rachel in a car like leaving town or something like that. Yeah. Okay. I think I saw that in like the DVD extras right. or something. Yeah, they like called up Kubrick. I was like, we we know you shot a bunch of helicopter shots. Can we borrow them for this? Oh, movie? that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. We could talk about religious imagery. I'm kind of sick of talking about religious imagery, but I think that, you know, there's the whole thing with, you could say there's a father, son, Holy Spirit thing. So father uh, is like Tyrell, son is Roy, because he even like, when he's trying to stay alive, he's like grabbing his hand. He's like, no, not yet. And then he like sticks a nail in his hand and it's very stigmata. And then I guess the Holy Spirit thing you could say is the dove flying away after Roy dies. I really like how in the scene when Roy meets Tyrell, Tyrell's wearing kind of a white, holy-like robe. Tyrell essentially lives in a pyramid. And uh, like you said earlier, one could read the William Blake poem as Roy likening himself to Lucifer, which you already said. But uh, yeah, it's a super dense film, super interesting. Do you guys want to talk about the... Let's talk about the uh, the unicorn. So, <laughs> So the unicorn was added... In so it was added from the original or the theatrical to the directors and then expanded on in the directors to the final. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, first it's in the directors and then expanded in in the yeah. in the. But final. it was always intended to be in the original film. And so at we, least by Ridley Scott. By Ridley Scott. <laughs> yeah. But it's not. Is that a memory that Deckard has, or it's just something that's in his head that he realized, or that Ridley Scott is trying to indicate to us that we're meant to think was implanted in his head for perhaps Edward James Olmos's character to indicate to him that he is also a replicant. Right. Yeah, if if you're reading it as Ridley Scott wants to tell you wants to tell you very clearly that Deckard is a replicant, then he would have had right the unicorn memory implanted in him. But is it a memory like who remembers a unicorn? Like that just seems like, <laughs> you know, in those images like he's not there. Right. It just seems like Right, like the fact that he's he can see that at all is right. Like right. he doesn't like you don't need the extra step of the origami unicorn. Like if you remember a unicorn, then something's wrong. <laughs> <So>. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never really been clear about that. Like why it needs to be a unicorn? Because I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'm pretty the sure the unicorn it's... is also shot from a different film. So they just are using that from something else. I oh, think it was like they shot it while they were shooting a different film or something. But that's why it yeah it looks pretty different and out of place. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it could have been anything, right? So. I do like that at Shrug. the end. At the end, he doesn't really dwell on it very much, and I think that goes more to the point of it not really mattering. 
even if we're to say that Decker does make the connection, he kind of just grabs the unicorn, turns around, and keeps going. It doesn't really affect his life if he's a replicant, if he realized it, or if he didn't. He's still going to go off and live his life to the fullest in the now with Rachel. Right. He's going to go to the nuclear wasteland of Las Vegas. (laughs) 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 I'm kind of getting back to what you were saying just a minute ago. I kind of have a question for you guys. Of Yeah, certain movies are dense and invite this kind of endless discussion. Um, Like, what do we think is required for that to happen? Because I feel like there's also plenty of movies that are dense and have a ton of meaning and nobody cares at all about. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like there's there needs to be something else that makes people want to spend time finding the meaning and dissecting it. But I'm never sure what that is. Yeah, there are certain movies that if... I mean, I have a general rule that... I mean, if I'm doing stuff for Wisecrack and it's like, uh, you know, we are just taking this on or analyzing this film because we think that, you know, the audience will be interested in it, you know, we'll just do it. But if it's like me personally, there have certainly been movies like, so for example, Darren Aronofsky's film Mother. I just hated that movie. <laughs> and uh, I and I knew that there was some subte- subtextual stuff going on there, but I just wasn't willing to put in the effort because I didn't feel seduced enough. I needed to be seduced into being curious as to what he's saying, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So for me, you have to give, you always have to give the audience something. The movie can't be 100% homework. Right. right. And like the... The religious uh, metaphors in Blade Runner, they're not so hit you over the head yeah. that you disengage from the film. Yeah. Like, they're there, and it increases in noticeability as, as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, with Mother, it's, like, very clear up front, like, this is the Bible. Um, this yeah. Is the, there, you know? So. There is no text to that movie. There's only <laughs> subtext. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, whereas like, you know, what kind of justifies a certain level of reading? It depends on if you're looking at a movie just as something as as an aspiring creator. If you're looking at a movie as an aspiring creator of either a screenwriter or a director or someone who wants to make movies, then there's probably a certain level of analysis that you really are going to only focus on the, the writer and director's intent. But if you're looking at a piece of media as a cultural artifact as something that is consumed and that can and as something that is consumed can construe messages that are perhaps not intended then and and that's largely what what we do at wisecrack is kind of you know look at things like cultural artifacts then i think you know really any level of analysis is justified because it's not whether or not the creator intended it it's just if you can point to enough evidence to make the argument that the text suggests something so, yeah. right, yeah, and if you can connect it to something else in in popular culture yeah. or culture at large, right? It's, uh, yeah, you're crafting crafting that uh, that meaning out of it. Yeah. Um, I think that's pretty much all I've got. Is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up on the movie? Um, it's awesome. So good. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen it in a theater? That would be an experience. Yeah, I don't think I have, actually. I haven't. I would really love to. I mean, I did. that was one of the things I did appreciate about seeing Blade Runner 2049 in a theater is that I feel like I I also haven't unpacked it, and so I don't have a whole lot of intelligent thoughts about it. But the experience of watching it, I felt like it was the most faithful sequel that I'd ever seen. Like, I feel like it kind of has a weird slow pacing problems, just like Blade Runner and the same people that like love Blade Runner, I feel like can get into this movie and the same people that were turned off 
by Blade Runner hated it in my experience anyway. Mm. But sitting in the theater, I feel like I had what I kind of imagined might have been the experience for people back when the original Blade Runner came out of just like this kind of vision of the future that is is different and, and very detailed and takes its time and is dense and all that stuff. Um, it's sort of a miracle that the sequel exists. Yeah. Like, you know, like movie yeah. studios are so cautious with with where they put their money and like they decided to make a really expensive sequel to a movie that's decades old and didn't make a lot of money. Well, even and this, was, I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> the sequel was a catastrophe financially, yeah, and so right. I mean, I don't know if they'll ever do that again, which is really soul crushing. But yeah, I can't imagine the idea that a sequel was made to this movie by a different director and that it's good and that it's faithful is amazing. Have you guys seen the trailers for Doctor Sleep, the sequel to The Shining? Oh, I've heard about it. I've uh, not well, seen it. I heard that that came. That it's came. real weird. Yeah, not to get off on too much of a tangent, <laughs> but um, so. Ewan McGregor plays Danny from The Shining as he's, like, old. Right, okay. But not only that, in the trailer, they show footage from the Kubrick movie. Like, you know, they show Danny on his tricycle, and then it flashes to Danny, Ewan McGregor, on a bike or something. So it's, like, directly drawing this connection. I can't think of a more daunting task than having to make a sequel to a Kubrick movie. Like, who would right. take that, that job? Sounds like such a terrible idea. It's a, it's a horrible idea. I'm sure the movie, the guy who's directing it, by the way, his last movie was the widely acclaimed film Ouija, the Ouija board film. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. It was not. Yeah. It was not acclaimed. <laughs> no, I, I got that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I actually haven't seen it, but I did check the reviews. I'm like, who is this guy that's taking up Kubrick's mantle? Okay, the Ouija guy. Well, good luck, bro. Yeah, like yeah, that's you're weird. Just doomed but... to failure, or yeah, or maybe this is the career turnaround that uh, you know we can hope. But that's a job. Maybe. I mean, you know, if I'm being overly fanciful, that's a job I would turn down. Like if somebody said, "Here's ten million dollars for you to make a sequel to a Kubrick movie," I would say no. Like that's yeah, it's just not necessary, and I can't do it justice. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really pumped for Dune. Is, yeah. Is oh yeah. yeah. I have never seen the David Lynch one, even though David Lynch is one of my favorite filmmakers. I've just heard it's bad, so I <laughs> have been avoiding it. Yeah. No, I haven't seen any version of Dune. Um, I've been, I'm reading Dune, but with you know Denis Villeneuve directing it, mm-hmm. um, who is the director of uh, Blade Runner 2049. That that movie might bomb terribly too, but <sighs> at least not. it's. I, yeah. I'm kind of hoping that it becomes like the next thing. It's the Aquaman, Aquaman is the main guy, right? Uh, no, it's uh, uh, Timothy Chalamet oh, okay. is the main character. And then his dad is Oscar Isaac. And yeah, Jason Momoa is in it. Okay, but, okay. Yeah. I think everybody is in it. <laughs> right, yeah. There was like that. It seems. There was like a weird couple of months where like all you heard was like, oh, tr- no, A-list actor joining Dune. Right. Well, that's what it was like in the 80s. <laughs> I mean, everyone who was who in the 80s was in the David Lynch Dune. But... Uh, I actually just I was reading David Lynch's biography and that was the low point of his life and his career. It was just a nightmare production and afterwards. Um, but anyway, we're going on tangents. We're going <laughs> to skip the mailbag today, guys. Uh, we just squeezed in this podcast since Sage was in town. So we said, come on over. We'll do a classic. Uh, we are going to be doing Midsummer next week. So apologies that uh, we did not uh, follow up on the promise last week. But uh, anyway, guys, I want to let you know, please check out both Michael and Sage's channels. They're some of the best stuff on YouTube. Sage's channel is just right. Michael's channel is Lessons from the Screenplay. If you listen to our seven podcasts, you already know that. 
Tell us a little bit about your channel and other stuff that you do, Sage. Uh, yeah, so I make video essays on, on YouTube. They're about writing. They're about media analysis. Um, I cover a bunch of different mediums. I got a, uh, a video game video on the way. Oh, cool. So that's can, my... can you tell us which game, or is it secret? Um, no, I can tell you. It's not... Uh, uh, I've been promising my patrons to that I do a video on The Witcher. Oh, cool. Um, so I'm doing a... But it's going to be The Witcher, and also The Last of Us is going to be in there, so... I just replayed The Last of Us. So good. It's Wait, so good. how long... T- how long did you have to play The Witcher to research that? Oh, that's better unanswered. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of research time. It's definitely research. Yeah. I mean, I've played a bit of The Witcher 3, and that thing is big. It's, yeah. it's humongous. It's, so good, it, it, it's, it's maybe my favorite game. It's, oh, cool. It's just, it's great. Every part of it. So. Awesome. Michael, anything you want to plug? Um, we recently launched a, a podcast of our, our own called uh, Beyond the Screenplay, where we me and the writing team and people that help make all the videos for lessons of the screenplay we do deeper dives into each of the movies that we've covered on the channel um and then occasionally we have guests on like we recently had uh john august on who oh, that's so awesome aladdin and big fish and he's he was really awesome had a lot of good tips for screenwriters and we had the writing team behind searching the john cho movie that came out last year so um, yeah, so that's that's a thing that we're doing. Sage will be on a, a future episode. That so, you guys are going to record right we're now. Going to go record right, right now. <laughs> cool. Well, guys, it was a pleasure having you. Can't wait to do this again next time you're in town, Sage. Yeah. Whenever, sure. whenever you want, Michael. You're just around awesome. the corner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Always fun. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Peace. <laughs>